Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what's the latest and greatest in Canadian politics? Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University, will join us to talk about that. What are some of the main challenges in hostage negotiations with dictators like Vladimir Putin? And we cover all things in American politics. Reggie Cicchini from Global News in Washington will join us. It's all coming up with the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's uh, swing back uh, to the UK. Uh, as we mentioned, uh, a number of world leaders have gathered uh, for the Queen's funeral today, and it was an opportunity for some of them, I guess, to get acquainted and maybe have some discussions. Uh, he, Prime Minister, of course, visited Downing Street over the weekend for his first in-person meeting with the new British Prime Minister, Liz Truss, all part of a busy day of diplomacy for lots of world leaders. Ben O'Hara Byrne is in London with Global News, and here's his report. I'm here at the gates of Downing Street, the Prime Minister's residence in London. Liz Truss replaced Boris Johnson just two days before the Queen's death, so this time of mourning has also provided a moment for her to meet world leaders, including today her Canadian counterpart. Truss is not the only leader Justin Trudeau is sitting down with, the list includes the Prime Ministers of Australia and Ukraine, and he will also attend a state function hosted by King Charles at Buckingham Palace. In London, I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. So what actually can happen at those sorts of meetings? Is this a, a, a real opportunity here for diplomacy, or is it really just kind of a meet and greet? Uh, let's begin our conversation there, but we're going to swing back to Ottawa here too, because our parliament gets underway uh, this week as well, and there's a number of hot issues uh, that need to be discussed. And to help us with all of this, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, thank you so much for the time on a busy morning for most of us. Glad you could join us today. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. When we have these uh, sessions, they, I, I want to—I was about to say impromptu, but I, nothing in politics is impromptu, I guess. Uh, they knew this was imminent. They all knew that we were going to get the invitation to go there. But when the prime minister uh, gets to meet with Prime Minister Truss and, and a number of other world leaders right that, is there anything substantive that actually gets discussed? I mean, because they don't have a whole lot of time to prep for a meeting like that. Yeah, I mean, they don't have a whole lot of time. And also, they want to be respectful of the fact that they are gathered for the Queen's funeral. And so it's not like they're going to start doing these big, you know, G7 style announcements or anything like that. If they do, if they are doing some diplomatic work, it's because they're all there and they've got an opportunity to do it. But they're not going to want to make as much of it just because it could look like they're, this is not really what they're there to do. But they can still have the conversations. They can still talk about issues that obviously are taking up a lot of global attention with respect to Ukraine, trade deals energy crisis, all the rest of it. And so, I mean, we can ask too, like what, sometimes some of the even bigger meetings of G7 countries that get bigger, you know, a whole lot more press don't necessarily accomplish everything we want them to accomplish either. Mm -hmm. And so I think from the perspective of just having an opportunity to sit down and talk about some things, there's certainly no harm in it. And, and it looks like, you know, from the reports we have, the major issues were discussed. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned in my preamble here, that was the first in-person meeting uh, that the Prime Ministers had together uh, at uh, Downing Street. I'm sure uh, that the Prime Minister and, and, and Ms. Truss have met each other previously. She was a member of the Boris Johnson cabinet. And as you mentioned, at some of those G7 meetings, I mean, there's usually an entourage there too. So it's it's not the first time they probably ever you know had any discussion. Uh, but I guess it's not a bad opportunity to start going over some of the, as you say, some of the key files and get her perspective on it uh, as the Prime Minister. Oh, absolutely. And it was such a, a strange turn of events in the sense that 
you know, obviously Boris Johnson was handed his walking papers a while ago. They went, the party went through a process that eventually came to Prime Minister Truss. And she, her, the Queen's last official meeting was with her. And mm-hmm. so now she's really, you know, she's, she's kind of on the global stage having this opportunity and a very unfortunate one because the Queen died, but an opportunity to meet a lot of the world leaders all at once and position herself as the Prime Minister of the UK at this point. So, yeah, I mean, it's it, in some ways, you know, a very sad occasion, but also you see the opportunity for world leaders to start building these conversations as we head into the fall. And as we, you know, start to look at things from, you know, what what's going to be done to try to handle the energy crisis as we go into the winter, what's going to happen with Germany. So, yeah, I mean, certainly no no lack of issues to talk about. Absolutely. By the way, is, is the Prime Minister expected back in Ottawa on time for the beginning of Parliament? Ooh, that's a very good question. I don't know. You, you know what I'm asking? Obviously, it's a big deal. As we mentioned, there's a lot on the agenda. But there's a great deal of anticipation about this showdown, you know, in question period with the Prime Minister and Pierre Polyev as the newly minted leader of the opposition. And yeah. uh, I just wonder exactly how that's going to play out if, in fact, the Prime Minister is going to be there by then. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. It's it's a highly anticipated showdown between the two of them. And I mean, we've seen Trudeau and Polyev go at one another before. The last time I think it was really front and center was during the WE scandal, where the prime minister was actually before a parliamentary committee, and Pierre Polyev was the key questioner and, you know, kind of the key enforcer, if I can say that, of the conservative line, where he was really making a name for himself, going at Trudeau for his involvement with the Wee situation. What did he know? Why didn't he recuse himself? All that stuff. And Polyev was quite, I think, impactful in terms of driving a lot of this to the prime minister and making him look responsible. And that's a lot, what a lot of people remember. I think there's a lot of anticipation for how exactly they will engage. I think they're going to hit the ground on the running on the issues that we know are important to both of them around cost of living and things like that. But as far as, as the rest of it is concerned, I mean, I think Polya would probably be happy to have the day to himself. But on the other end, mm-hmm. I think if he's the leader of the opposition and he's just starting, he's really going to want to have that opportunity to put that question to the prime minister and start looking prime ministerial himself. Uh, he's got to be riding at least an emotional high anyway after uh, you know winning the leadership in, in the fashion in which he did. And as you say, his past record against the prime minister. But uh, the, the polling on this I find somewhat confusing because it's in, in many ways, Laurie, it's contradictory. I'm sure you saw the story over the weekend on CBC uh, about his winning support for young, diverse voters. And, and you know, that, that seemed to be the thrust of the story, that uh, that young voters are turning to to him uh, because of some of the things that he's talking about right now. Yet when we see national polling, uh, he doesn't fare that well. Uh, I think it was like 48% of the people said they didn't really know the guy that much to even have an opinion about him. Uh, but those that did have an opinion don't like him very much. So it, 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 we're getting a mixed message here. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's still quite, as we say, like it's early days. He hasn't had the opportunity to meet the House yet as the leader of the official opposition. And I mean, in some ways, I was kind of surprised in some of the polls that we've seen in recent weeks that he really, you know, in, in many cases, he's not a household name at this point. And he's, I, to me, I still think that's a good thing for him in the sense that he's got opportunity to build his brand. People haven't made up his mind, their minds about him yet. And so there, that's going to be a big part of the back and forth between the liberals and the conservatives, too, is both are going to be trying to define who Pierre Polyev is. And so the liberals weren't saying much about him at all, which 
on the one hand, I think was kind of a mistake. And on the other hand, I think it's because they were trying not to, sh- to look like they were anticipating his win with any kind of, you know, apprehension. But once he was chosen, then you see Trudeau coming out and saying, basically, this guy is dangerous. He's reckless. His ideas about the economy are not responsible. We can't trust this guy. And so I think there's going to be that exchange around whether or not Polyev is really leadership material against the backdrop of a very palpable sense of voter fatigue with the liberals. And so all of this also against the backdrop of this deal between the Liberals and the NDP, which, depending on how long it lasts, could kind of buttress the Liberals from any vulnerability that the Conservatives can put up at this point. That battle to define Polyev is going to be interesting, isn't it? Because the opposition parties, I'm sure, have a strategy already as to how they want to go at him. And you're right, we got a little inkling of that from the Prime Minister just after the Conservative leadership. Uh, But an effective strategy like this can actually destroy somebody. I mean, Stefan Dion never recovered from the way that the Conservatives went after him when he won the leadership. And and also Michael Ignatieff, same situation. Uh, it's incumbent upon somebody who is new to the job, I guess, to get out there and, and, and you define yourself instead of letting the opposition do it for you. Oh, yeah, I 100% you're right. And I think that was part of uh, Polyev's calculations with the way he went about his leadership campaign, he created these pretty long YouTube videos or, or videos that, that ended up being circulated on all kinds of social media. And it was really Polyev talking directly to the listener about himself. And he has not um, engaged all that much with traditional media at all, which he started to call legacy media, which is a whole other story. But I'm sure some, some listeners caught the exchange between Pierre Polyev and the global journalist David Aiken the other day, where Aiken went at Polyev for not taking questions mm-hmm. from journalists. He seems to think that he doesn't have to do that. And so I think that's part of his plan to try to define himself and that he doesn't want the media to filter his identity through its own lenses. He wants to speak directly to people about who he is and what he's doing. And he's taking maybe a different kind of approach to that through social media and things like that in order to be able to kind of land that message the way he wants. Trudeau, this is a strange ground for him, I think, because if we recall, he started in 2015 by saying, you know, all this stuff about sunny ways and he's not going to do negative attack ads. But I mean, they might they may want to reconsider that if they think it's what, ne- they, what needs to be done in order to define Polyev. But it's still a different kind of political space for him to occupy, and potentially Trudeau supporters don't want to see that from him. Uh, which ties in nicely to the last thing I wanted to ask you about today, and that was the poll that was released here. Uh, this was a poll by the Toronto Star of MPs. Uh, about the state of uh, Canadian politics right now. And it's not a very rosy picture, as you saw, Laurie. Uh, They say there is basically a a deterioration of democracy and the democratic principles in this country. Uh, An awful lot of them seem to feel that way. Uh, Do you get that mood in Ottawa right now, that that, that everyone's in a funk? You do, yeah. And there's also a sense that the views that are on the farthest sides of the spectrum are getting the most amplification and the most um, attention. And even though most people are not on opposite sides of things, right? Like most people are not at the extremes. Most people are in some space where there is, there, there's space to build to other positions. So you're not at, not at a point where you're holding absolutely non-negotiable, you know, positions where there's no way to build a bridge to someone else. Most people are capable of some bridge building, but you don't hear as much of that. It seems. And that's got to mean to me that there's something wrong with the kind of the black box that is the democratic machine. 
Because if you think about it as a sort of marketplace of ideas, which is a kind of like capitalist version of, of the democracy machine, which is get let the good ideas that have support sink to the, you know, come to the top and let the other ideas kind of fade away because they don't get as much support. And if we're seeing an amplification of things that don't actually have that much support and a silencing of the of the kind of where the consensus is, that's a problem in how the machine is working. And so is this a voter apathy problem? Is this a you know, some sort of distortion in how the media, the social and social media are pulling, you know, pulling messages out and then sending them around. I'm not sure, but it's a, it, I think it's a pretty tough time to be a politician these days. Well, and as one of them said in in their comments to this, uh, it's, it's the erosion of the democratic institutions and lack of respect for a lot of them for the, not just that, but for the offices, uh, prime minister, member of parliament, et cetera, the, you know, the abuse that, that is hurled at these people right now, it, it's going to get to you after a while. I don't care who you are. I mean, and uh, we've talked about this in the past and I mean, in bygone days, you can debate, uh, you know, yeah. in the old, old days, guys, Diefenbaker and Pearson had incredible debates back and forth, but there was a respect there for the position that each one of them had. And they, they'd argue like hell, of course, in the floor of the House of Commons. I'm not going to say they went and had a beer after necessarily, but I mean, there was a mutual respect there that they were part of something bigger. I, I don't think people even perceive uh, parliament or politicians to be that way right now. They're, they're just... I, and they can feel it. It's palpable, I'm sure, in Ottawa, but it certainly is, uh, you know, when you talk to some of these members right now, and I, you know, I don't want to pull a Rodney Dangerfield, they don't get any respect, but I think people are very skeptical of them right now as opposed, as opposed to being respectful of them. Yeah, there seems to be a kind of winner-take-all, I just want, I'm here because I want to win, and if I have to rip the other person down and take the institutions with it, take civility with it, I'll do it, right? And so I don't know if Turner and Mulrooney and Broadbent went for a beer after those debates either. But I think they probably could have, and it would have been okay. Whereas if you've got people who are just tearing each other apart and questioning one another's commitment to the public good and questioning one another's you know, moral compass just right down to the, to the bones of it, that is really difficult to pivot into a situation where everybody can still participate in a common project, which is what we need. But... When you have, and I think the other thing too, and this is a whole other conversation, is we're moving toward a situation where parties are not really about the parties anymore. They're about building this almost a cult-like thing around the leader. And so it's much harder to pivot when it's all leader-focused, and I'm on this guy's team, not that guy's team. It's much harder to then find common ground because everything looks like, you know, either a win or a loss. There's no just bridge building in that space. Well, and we've seen that, and we'll probably talk about that next week when we get together after a week or so of Parliament. Uh, the vilification of Jack Mead Singh right now because he cut this deal with the Liberals. And whether or not you like the deal or not is inconsequential. It's that he's being ridiculed for actually doing that. In other words, trying to work with the government party, because you don't do that in politics these days, apparently. Yeah, no, that you're, you're absolutely right, and it's true. He's, he's going to be put on the defensive a lot, I think, by the conservative machine to explain why he's been put putting his support behind the Liberals if they're not going to give him anything for it. Well, it's going to be a fascinating week. Uh, we always look forward to our conversations, Laurie. Thank you so much for this. Uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon. Sounds great, Bill. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull from uh, Dalhousie University with a quick look at what's going on in the Canadian political scene. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
interesting week in Ukraine with the war and uh, some big victories, we're told, by the Ukraine army against Russian. Uh, we had stories, anecdotal stories, about Russians simply dropping their weapons and running uh, from the oncoming Ukraine army, uh, which begs the question, what's going to be happening next? We're going to get to that in just a second. But uh, this late last week, before we went to London for the funeral of Queen Elizabeth, U.S. President Joe Biden met with family members from WNBA star Brittany Griner and uh, family members also from another American detained in Russia, Paul Whelan. Ben Thomas has details for us. The meetings at the White House are the first face-to-face encounter between the president and the relatives of Griner and Whelan. Administration officials say they're meant to underscore Biden's commitment to bringing the two home and to establish a personal connection. But not an indication negotiations with Russia for their release have reached a breakthrough. On that, National Security spokesman John Kirby. We made a serious offer. Uh, we want them to accept it. They, they, frankly, uh, these two individuals ought to be home anyway, period. Uh, but we understand that uh, there's a, that's probably going to have to be the result of a negotiating process, one that we're willing to participate in honestly and fully, and we've been doing that. And we, wait, we, we await them to, to, to take the offer that's on the table. Ben Thomas, Washington. I want to bring Elliot Tepper into the conversation. Elliot, of course, is Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. Uh, Elliot, always a pleasure. Thanks for the time today. Uh, good morning, Bill. You know, if this were Al-Qaeda, for instance, that was holding these two people and uh, or anybody else, we'd say that this is just awful. This is horrendous. You know, these, these are terrorists. This is a kidnapping. It's, it's, it's the same thing, if not the same name, when a government decides to illegally detain somebody on trumped-up charges. Uh, yet diplomacy is, is what's needed, I guess, in a situation like this. But there's got to be some, some level of disgust here that this is even happening in the first place. And this, I know, it ties very much into a number of discussions you and I had about the Chinese government and the two Michaels that uh, finally got resolved. Yes, well, the, <laughs> we have multiple issues here. The first is that we have state-level arbitrary detention. One of the things we have to emphasize right off the top is that this is not a traditional spy versus spy uh, Cold War scenario. This is a situation of a state arbitrarily, this is the technical term, arbitrary detention of innocent civilians in order to hold them for some kind of hostage swap. It's, It's a blackmail situation. It's important to note, as you did, that the U.S. president himself is now personally involved for, with um, both of the cases of, of the two people uh, under question. At the very highest level of the American government, they are now concerned with the fact that Russia, <laughs> Russia, a state, not a terrorist organization officially, has, although there's some moves to make that happen, uh, has arbitrarily detained people uh, just because they want to do a prisoner swap. So it's we have to start off at the top that this is not, as you did point it out, Bill, that this is not a private group saying, hey, we've got your people, give us something. This is a state saying, we've got your people, give us something. Oh, it's kidnapping, essentially. Uh, and, and I mean, common sense would dictate that a lot of what's going on here, especially with the, the latest uh, situation with Russia and uh, the two people we just mentioned, Waylon and Greiner, uh, had a lot to do, I'm sure, with, uh, with the, the sanctions against Russia after they invaded Ukraine uh, and the impact that that's having and, and probably some of the comments made by President Biden at that time, too, about Putin. The, the um, situation gets even more complex because there are private efforts to go over and do something about it. 
we have two individuals, two Americans who have a track record of success in freeing hostages, although probably with quiet government backing behind them. Dennis Rodman, as you may recall, went off to North mm -hmm. Korea, brought back some people. And uh, former Governor Bill Richardson uh, has had a post-governorship career, really, of going around the world and, and helping release hostages. The U.S. government has, has told them to back off, that we have uh, established channels and let the U.S. government handle this. The fact that Russia is willing to behave in this behavior at this time, keeping in mind they have other things to worry about in terms of the world thinking of them in a less than positive way, if I could put it gently. Now they are joining, and this is kind of my big takeaway, there are states which are self-identifying as not willing to behave according to the norms of traditional international behavior, even under wartime or or Cold War conditions where spy versus spy might be considered, well, okay, you've got one of ours, we've got one of yours, we'll just swap them eventually. This is a different level of behavior, and it self-identifies these states as basically pariah states not willing to behave in a fashion that states that want to be considered seriously as players in the world uh, now behave in a way that makes them be basically disqualified disqualified by any norms of international behavior as serious players well responsible players which is compounded by the story that we heard over the weekend of course about uh, it ties in with what's going on in Ukraine right now. Since uh, Ukraine soldiers have, have taken some of the uh, large swaths of territory in a couple of uh, cities and towns, uh, they found torture chambers and, and mass graves uh, where the Russians were occupying for some time. Uh, so if you want to talk about, you know, rogue states and sort of the, the, the sort of heinous behavior that's going on, I mean, this, this just underscores that whole process, doesn't it? Yes. Uh, once again, we are seeing behavior of a state that says we are, we want we want respect. We think, Russia said, you have to treat us as a world power. Give us respect. And now look at the behavior, which is doing everything possible to undermine that respect. China did that, I think, with the two Michaels, uh, which, of course, involved Canada most directly, and therefore led to that arbitrary detention declaration, 70 states now saying uh, we, we have to do something about that. In the situation of Ukraine, we have entered a uh, a different stage, I think. The success of Ukraine in the, on the war front, on the battlefront, is now revealing more human rights abuses. I, I, I don't even, Bill, I, I don't even like the term human rights. It's, it's as if, oh, well, they have human rights problems, but we can deal with them elsewhere. These, this is behavior that is not acceptable by, by any state's uh, uh, norms. They are disqualifying Russia as a responsible player in the world, and China is associating themselves with Russia. Uh, the more this kind of behavior is unraveled, and I want to emphasize this as well, as soon as the Russian uh, forces retreat and Ukrainian forces go in, they bring with them at that time specialists in documenting war crimes, and we're seeing that. The, the um, next step, therefore, is the more Russia is shows itself in the case of this hostage taking, which is not, thank you for bringing that up, it's, it's not receiving a lot of attention, but also their much more egregious behavior in Ukraine, 
the more that happens, the greater is the threat of what will a revealed uh, Russia, which desperately wants respect as a great power, as it besmirches itself and as it loses uh, battlefield um, advantages, as it shows it, as they are forced out, the kind of behavior that they indulge in. If this is what the Russians are like, uh, will Ukraine, even the pro-Russian, initially at the start of this war, this they, they went into the Russian-speaking areas to protect those areas, the Russian-speaking areas, they consider them Russians, against the, you know, the, the Nazis. They're just revealing themselves as the kind of state that will never get the respect that they are now demanding. What will they do next? This is a big concern right now. The President of the United States gave a rare press conference and he said, we are concerned that Russia will now consider chemical weapons and nuclear weapons, and we're telling them, don't do it. Was that the message that uh, Putin got over the weekend too, from uh, from Xi and from uh, the the Indian Prime Minister as well, Modi? Uh, they they showed support, but and I use that term loosely. Elliot. You know, uh, they did not condemn the Russian actions certainly, but I got the sense from some of the uh, uh, stories we're hearing from that was supposed to be a, a summit uh, that that they both said. The, the message there seemed to be like enough is enough. I mean, you know, Modi was talking about peace efforts and uh, as, as China was talking about, you know, ending the, the conflict altogether. Uh, those are his allies that are basically telling him that. What kind of a message does that send to Putin? And does he get that message? He is, he apparently uh, was a bit taken aback and he said he understands China's concern. Uh, keeping in mind that both China and India are really helping that war machine along in a very major way because they are buying the oil that is being and energy supplies that are being blocked uh, in Europe. So as Russia says, well, don't worry, we can always sell our oil and gas. And they're making major deals in terms of having to build new pipelines in order to reach uh, China through Kazakhstan and so forth. They are now being at least pushed back a bit by the, the people that are sustaining them. But keep in mind, those states are sustaining Russia. The uh, Indian case is particularly interesting to me because I'm, a, I'm an Indologist of sorts, and this is the, what I've been teaching all my career. So the, the position of Mr. Modi is that we understand our dear, long friends, the ones who have been with us through thick and thin, that is, Russia supported us when others weren't. We have to be with them, but now we don't want to be associated with what you were just talking about, the kind of human rights atrocities that Russia is now, is now uh, being revealed to have committed. Also, both Russia and China, I'm sorry, India and China have no real incentive to say, we really approve of neighboring, neighboring states invading and occupying a neighboring state. Their, their own national boundaries are absolutely sacred to them. Uh, that's key to their own international positions. So they are caught in the awkward position right now of supporting a state which has violated the core principle of their own sovereignty. Uh, which, as you say, both have threatened to do. I mean, India along their borders and, of course, China. Just this past weekend when the uh, the 60 Minutes interview with President Biden where he talked about, uh, reaffirmed really his, his position that the United States would support Taiwan if there was an invasion. Didn't quite say how that was going to work out, but, I mean, <laughs> that got an immediate reaction from, from the Chinese. Yes. <laughs> the... Uh, 
the press always likes to jump on on President Biden's gaffes. Oh, there he did it again. But this is now the, at least the fourth time that he has said we will defend Taiwan, which is then immediately uh, a statement comes out separately from the Department of State that, no, we have not changed our position of, of strategic ambiguity. We have not said we would definitely support Taiwan. But when the U.S. president says it four times, it is a message. Well, absolutely. And you're right. I mean, they were they were scrambling to try to reiterate that policy and, and try to meld those two things together. Uh, that uh, the, you know, the quasi neutrality that uh, that they've tried to maintain. Uh, but Biden's taking it one step further. But he that's consistent with what he was talking about when he was senator uh, of the Foreign Relations Committee, too. I mean, he, he hasn't wavered. Maybe it's the U.S. policy uh, that's been carved in stone that maybe needs some adjustment. I'm, I'm not sure where that's going to go. We are in a stepping that back a half a step from everything we're talking about, Bill. We are in a very um, tense global situation right now. We have a superpower, nuclear-armed superpower that is determined to get its way in Ukraine. It is not doing so, and it may take extreme steps. We have a China which is acting uh, belligerently, if I could put it gently, toward not just uh, Taiwan, but all the neighboring states. They basically want to close off the South China Sea from international commerce. They want to push America and its allies, that means us, out of the South China Sea to make it a Chinese lake. That's also a nuclear armed power, which is, in, coming back to India, in a potential conflict situation with India. They are both nuclear armed. We are, as the UN General Assembly is about to meet, we are in a situation where the possibility of downward spirals, if I could put it that way, uh, have has increased. Well, as one commentator mentioned over the weekend, uh, everybody's got their guns pointed at each other and the fingers are on the trigger now. So uh, one false move, and you're right, we could be in a very precarious situation. Well, the uh, Elliot, Secretary we'll... General has said we are one miscalculation away from Armageddon. Nuclear yeah, well, annihilation. And he's not overstating that either. We'll watch with great interest to see what's going to happen over the next week or so. Elliot, as always, thank you so much for this. Really enjoyed our conversation today. Uh, thank you, Bill. It's, it's a gloomy way to start the week, but it is. Uh, that's the news. Exactly. Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Carleton University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Focus on Washington. A, a busy, busy time in the uh, U.S. Capitol, of course, uh, with what's going on. The Supreme Court's going to get back to work pretty soon. Uh, there's also the debate about uh, what's going to be happening uh, with Donald Trump and his financial records. The House Oversight Committee uh, gained a small victory on that. And uh, migrants being dropped off where they shouldn't be dropped off in many people's minds. Uh, the latest near Kamala Harris's uh, residence in Washington, D.C. Uh, to talk about all this stuff, we're pleased to welcome to the program Reggie Cicchini. Reggie, of course, is Global News Washington correspondent in the U.S. Capitol. Uh, Reggie, on a busy, busy day, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate the time. Good, Good morning. Saw the, uh, the, the photos and, and the this coverage over the weekend, Reggie, about uh, Texas Governor Abbott uh, says he intentionally spent two buses of migrants to Vice President Kamala Harris's residence in the nation's capital. Uh, Ron DeSantis, of course, uh, sent a couple of plane loads of people to Martha's Vineyard. What is going on? So, look, this is a calculated effort by uh, these Republican governors to try and say, look, the border is not secure, as we've been hearing from uh, both the president and the vice president, who's been tasked with trying to deal with the border um, security issues. Uh, and they say that sending these migrants to 
um, you know, so-called sanctuary cities or sanctuary states takes the problem away from these, you know, so-called red states and puts the problem in the hands uh, of blue states, but it is being highly criticized. Democrats are saying that this is inhumane. This is treating people who are trying to escape, uh, you know, problem X, Y, and Z as political pawns. But these Republican governors say that this is the right move, that this is going to move the needle uh, when it comes to trying to fix whatever they see uh, the border security crisis to be. The problem is, is that with Republicans in so much hot water right now, this could ultimately backfire but it's not stopping the motive and this is likely going to be something that continues uh now i know this is variations on the theme of donald trump and the wall and people running across the the, the borders and you know people traveling for days sometimes to get to that border so these people have been allowed in and they're being processed is that is that the, and they are allowed to, to to go from place to place while they're being processed yeah, some of them are. Some of them, you know, are crossing, um, you know, illegally. But those that are being processed, we have to remember what took place, at least when it comes to Ron DeSantis, uh, the Florida governor who put, you know, groups of people on two chartered planes and landed them uh, in Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Uh, these people were in a processing center. Uh, and, you know, according to the reporting, somebody came up to them, off, you know, uh, allegedly offered them employment or jobs or, or social networking in another place. And ultimately, that's how we wound up with two planes uh, in Martha's Vineyard. The governor's office in Florida is denying that, saying that that didn't take place. But, you know, when language can be a barrier when you're in another country, uh, you know, again, trying to escape the, the, the socialism that realistically Republicans are oftentimes pushing back against, uh, to get dropped into another area becomes problematic because, again, it takes away any kind of familiarity or, or, or networking um, ability here. So this just becomes a, a problem. It becomes a problem for Republicans. It becomes an ongoing thorn in the side for Democrats who are trying to argue by saying, look, numbers are up. Illegal crossings are growing. The number of migrants crossing into the United States is at an all-time high, but it's not detrimental. But as Republicans try to pinpoint, well, look, it is problematic. It becomes harder for Democrats to, to push back and say it isn't, especially when these kinds of you know, for lack of a better word, stunts really start to dominate the conversation. Now, and, and to that point, uh, when we see we, with the, the people we're, we're told of from places like uh, Guyana, Nicaragua, uh, Panama, uh, Colombia, uh, and, and many of them, according to the reporting, Reggie, are, are, they're just walking from where they were. They're escaping persecution, as you've said, or drug lords, any number of different reasons for this. So, uh, but there are people, as I understand it, that, that are there as volunteers to help process these, especially even in these sanctuary cities you've talked about. Uh, but Governors Abbott and, and DeSantis made a point of not delivering them where those people were there to help them, but just to basically in the middle of nowhere, dropped off and boom, you're on your own in the middle of the street. Yeah, essentially trying to make it a problem, uh, you know, yeah. kind of a surprise problem for uh, for these uh, areas like Martha's Vineyard. And I think to the surprise potentially of uh, Republicans, including these governors, uh, you know, the, these migrants that were that were uh, that uh, were flown rather uh, into Massachusetts uh, were essentially welcomed with open arms. There were no. Um, you know, resources available for them. But, you know, here was the, the region really bringing itself together as quickly as it could to ensure that these migrants were going to be taken care of. They've ultimately been moved on to a military forces base, which, again, is being pushed back on by Republicans to say, well, look, if the cities can't deal with it, why are we as the army now being forced to, to handle it? But at the end of the day, this could potentially have blowbacks, especially in a place like Florida, which has a growing Venezuelan population of more than 200,000 people. They may see this uh, as 
as, as question worthy because there is a growing uh, segment of uh, the Latin American population in Florida that does now vote Republican. This may lead them to question that future vote and has given a bit of a leg up to the candidate going up against um, Governor DeSantis, Charlie Crist. Uh, to say, look, you know, maybe the Republicans aren't the way to do this. They are the ones who are saying that America is becoming some quote unquote socialist fascist state. And if they, if they are actively working against the people fleeing that, what do they actually stand for? This really could have ramifications a couple of months from now during the midterms. What about in Texas? Is this a similar situation with Governor Abbott? I know that uh, uh, former, actually, Democratic uh, presidential uh, aspirant, uh, Beto O'Rourke, is running against Abbott in Texas right now, and he's always made immigration a key issue. Is, is How's that playing out in Texas? Yeah, well, look, Texas is another state where this could become problematic. It is no longer the deep red state, even though there's been some gerrymandering to try and redistrict states to give Republicans a leg up. This Texas is still um, a more and more deeply shaded purple state uh, with a, an incredibly large Latin American population. So there is a risk here, once again, that this backfires on Governor Abbott. Less likely, uh, you know, the, the, the polls are really not showing that this is going to be a, a big, strong moment for someone like Beto O'Rourke to come out and come forward. But again, you know, nothing flips overnight. And as Texas gradually grows more and more and more kind of progressive, or at least centrally progressive, uh, when you're looking at, uh, you know, red to blue, um, this again, could be problematic down the road. Uh, and it is simply just leading to these ongoing calls, whether it's from Beto O'Rourke, or whether it's uh, from Democrats as a whole, including the president and vice president, that people don't need to be used as political pawns. And there are better ways to go about calling out what you see as a problem, you know, other than putting somebody's life potentially in danger by taking them somewhere where they already went through an incredibly dangerous time trying to get where they were. Interesting to see how this is going to play out in the next couple of days. Uh, the president, of course, gets back from uh, London, I guess, later this week, and he'll be, I'm sure, addressing this. Uh, everybody getting back to work in Washington after their summer break. For, uh, House Oversight Committee uh, has begun receiving financial documents uh, about former President Donald Trump's former accounting firm. Now, this is separate and apart from the Mar-a-Lago thing. And this is dating back to, I, I guess, the financial things that the Southern District in New York was looking at. And, and then the Oversight Committee has taken over. What, what are they looking for here, Reggie? They're looking for everything uh, when it comes to the former president's um, financial transactions in the years leading up to before he was the candidate, well, he was the candidate, and well, he was the president. That includes trying to get some of the financial documents for the old post office in D.C., which ultimately became um, the, the Trump Hotel, which in itself ultimately hosted uh, a number of world figures. And because this was one of the rare properties that was owned by uh, Trump himself, that meant that money was potentially being funneled into, um, you know, the private funds uh, of Donald Trump at the expense of, uh, you know, world leaders visiting the United States. And that really gets into, you know, a whole bunch of nitty gritty about the emoluments clause. But at the end of the day here, what House uh, members have been trying to do from the time that Donald Trump was in office was get to the uh, bottom of ongoing accusations uh, that the former president as a, a private citizen would often devalue his assets when it came time to taxes in order to benefit himself or would over inflate certain numbers within his own um, kind of financial sphere to make it look like he was doing significantly better. Uh, they say that this was all problematic. They say that there are potential illegal undertones to this. We know from Donald Trump's former fixer, Michael Cohen, that this is something that did take place. But these documents were really stood in front of by Donald Trump uh, and, and kind of people within the financial orbit of him uh, until uh, one of the financial firms finally said, look, we can't stand behind about 10 years worth of these documents. Uh, and they are slowly starting to hand them over now. 
whether this is going to have a big, you know, uh, uh, kind of moment here, Bill, is still to be seen because the clock is ticking here for Democrats. They may get some of these documents in their hands. They may not have a lot of time to actually do things with them. Well, yeah, as you mentioned in your reporting, I mean, we just talked about that a couple of minutes ago. The midterm elections are coming up. And uh, so, you know, they're going back to work for a little while, but only for a little while. I I guess the same thing applies to the January 6th committee, too, doesn't it, Reggie? Yeah, absolutely. Again, the clock is ticking. So whether the House Oversight Committee is able to do something with these uh, documents, you know, whether they're able to bring them public, whether they're able to kind of uh, paint a different picture here, you know, the, the clock is not on their side, especially for someone like Carolyn Maloney, who is the the uh, the chair of the Oversight Committee. She lost her primary in redistricting. Uh, so she is essentially, uh, essentially watching her, her political future kind of fizzle out. And with January 6th as well, this committee needs to get this work wrapped up. It was supposed to be wrapped up by now. Uh, but with midterms coming in November, with a chance here uh, that, you know, Democrats could be looking at themselves in a lame duck position, uh, they ultimately need to get the work that they want the public to see out as soon as possible, because Republicans have already stepped up to say, look, here are the investigations that we are going to start with on day one when the new Congress is sworn in. And absolutely none of those investigations are going to carry on the investigations that have been happening for the last several years. So uh, Democrats are are on eggshells right now, hoping that they don't crack through because there's a lot of information they want to get out there. Uh, we mentioned everybody getting back to work in Washington, not the Supreme Court. It'll be October, I guess, before they uh, reconvene. But uh, a lot of backlash, of course, about the uh, the Roe versus Wade decision, Reggie, uh, from uh, back in the uh, early summertime. Uh, and a lot of accusations right now that the Supreme Court has become a political tool uh, for the right wing. What are you hearing in the Capitol? Well, I mean, look, we've heard uh, the the president, we've heard the vice president, we've heard leading members within uh, the Democratic conference use the word radical when it comes to how the Supreme Court is operating now because of that decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, which, well, it had the support of the conservative members of the court. It did not fall in line with what the broad majority of um, of Americans were feeling. And there is this fear now that that the United States Supreme Court, uh, its credibility has been compromised. And there's a fear that in the hearings that are to come, and there are some substantial hearings that are expected to come this term, uh, which have to do with uh, with LGBTQ rights and have to do with uh, redistricting in North Carolina that could see the courts taken out of the picture when it comes to elections and leave it into the hands of Republicans. There are real fears here that this Supreme Court could change the course of this country, the way that it's navigating forward, based on what the politics behind it are, not based on what the kind of, um, you know, the the legal standings would be. Uh, and well, there is pushback from the court, Chief Justice John Roberts is saying, look, you know, that's not how it's going to be. There are some members of the left-leaning side, including Justice Kagan, who fear that the credibility has been shot. And there is a deep concern for what that could mean, not just for this term, but for terms down the road. What does public perception play here, though, Reggie? I mean, because I know, you know, the the quote from Alexander Hamilton, the Supreme Court has neither force nor will, merely judgment. In other words, we'll, we'll pass our judgment on the laws, but it's up to the state legislatures of the federal government uh, to actually enforce and, or enact these sorts of things. But the, the tone seemed to be, yeah, but you guys are setting, you, you, you guys are setting the music here. I mean, you know, these guys are just playing along and you, you, set the table for them to do this sort of thing. And the the accusation is that the court is actually being proactive in some of these decisions. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you can look at uh, Roe v. Wade because of that. That was precedent. That was the law of the land. But it was Republican state legislators and Republican lawmakers that wanted to see that change. And you had the Supreme Court ultimately bend to say, well, look, maybe this was out of step in the first place and we should give this back to Republicans, even though so many of the sitting justices during their nominations, the ones that were nominated by Trump, made a point of saying that Roe v. Wade was um, was uh, in practice not to be uh, kind of rescinded. So there is that general concern that this is a court that is now working for the politics and is not working to simply, um, you know, take the information, take the cases that are brought to it and decide based on what the laws should be. They're, they're deciding based on what, you know, the kind of political interest should be. And that could become a dangerous game down the road, especially with so many other, like I said, uh, pressing matters coming before the court, including ones that could have a significant impact on the 2024 election based on what happens with this upcoming North Carolina hearing. So the, the fears are real. The fears from Democrats are um, at, a, at an almost boiling point here that rights could continue to fall because when Roe fell, Bill, that was the first time in the court's history that they actively took rights away from the American public rather than expanding them for everyone. It's uh, going to be an interesting session for the Supreme Court as well. Watching for your reporting on this, as always, on Global National. Reggie, thanks for the time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bill. Reggie Cicchini, Washington correspondent for Global News in the U.S. Capitol. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.